This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Found on the northern end of Marco Island in 1896 during an expedition led by a renowned archaeologist named Frank Hamilton Cushing, the Key Marco Cat is considered a true gem, a once-in-a-lifetime or more find discovered during the early days of the science of archaeology. Just six inches tall and carved out of some sort of hardwood, the cat and the many other objects that were discovered alongside it represent the most comprehensive and spectacular spectacular collection of pre-Columbian Native American material culture ever discovered in Florida. The term pre-Columbian refers to pre-European contact, so before the arrival of Christopher Columbus in 1492 or around that time. Over the 127 years that have passed since its discovery, the Key Marco cat has been seen by millions of people, mostly at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., and it has been admired, fought over, inspected, mounted, studied, transported and treated by a century's worth of museum professionals. That last line is a quote from my guest today's book, The Nine Lives of Florida's Famous Key Marco Cat. Austin Bell is curator of collections for the Marco Island Historical Society and consulting scholar at the Penn Museum. He joins us today to talk about the cat and its influence on the world around it, including him, as well as another fantastic artifact, a deer figurehead that was discovered during that same expedition back in 1896 that's now on display alongside the cat figurine at the Marco Island Historical Museum. Austin, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Thanks for having me back. So what's your first memory of the Key Marco cat, or when did it first, you know, enter your orbit? Well, you know, I wish I could say it was earlier than it actually was because I'm, a, you know, born and raised in Florida in West Palm Beach. And, uh, but it, unfortunately, it took me until I was working at the University of Florida in their uh, collections, the anthropology collections, where they have a portion of the Key Marco materials. And so uh, as a student of anthropology at the time, um, that's where I first learned about the Key Marco site. And of course, the Key Marco cat was the most famous artifact from that site. Um, when you first learned about it and you were studying anthropology, could you have imagined that your path would take you to a point where you'd be writing a biography of the cat someday? <laughs> Not at all, no. I, I My task at the time was simply to inventory the items that they did have because we were moving them from one location in the museum to another uh, due to uh, a renovation of the collection storage at the time. And so um, I really you know, thought, wow, these are incredible artifacts, amazing, um, you know, that they were uh, made of wood and plant fiber and other materials that don't usually survive in archaeological sites, incredibly fragile. But uh, I thought, you know, when I leave this museum, that'll probably be the last time I see them. And well, here we are. <laughs> uh, describe the cat to our listeners, uh, you know, in radio terms. It's, you know, how big it is, what it feels like to hold it, you know, what it's made of or presumed to be made of. Sure. So it's it's made of wood. We don't know exactly what type of wood, um, but probably a native Florida hardwood. Uh, it's a little less than six inches in height, uh, and it's very light if you hold it in your hands. I equate it to about a half empty or half full uh, soda can, um, so less than half a pound, I believe. And um, it's, you know, it's carved. Uh, it was carved usually using shark tooth tools, most likely, among other tools. Um, and it's uh, sort of crouching in a, in a seated position with its forelimbs resting on its knees or its thighs. And, and so it's um, thought to be anthropomorphic, meaning it has both animal and human uh, attributes. And so it sort of looks half human, half feline. 
Um, it wasn't there at UF when you were going through those other artifacts, was it? That's correct. Um, the collection from Key Marco has been uh, divvied up over the years. Um, uh, when they were first excavated in 1896 and brought back uh, to uh, the Smithsonian and the University of Pennsylvania Museum. And there was a division uh, to be made by the archaeologist Frank Hamilton Cushing at the time between those two institutions. It was a contentious thing that you outlined in your book. It was, <laughs> yes. And so um, many years actually passed and Cushing actually died before the artifacts uh, disposition was finalized. And so uh, the cat ended up at the Smithsonian Institution, but many of the other uh, animal figureheads ended up at the Penn Museum. And then from there, they were further uh, disseminated over the years to the National Museum of the American Indian uh, and the Florida Museum of Natural History in Gainesville, where that collection that I worked on is now. How much, because it has been now at the museum since 2019, right? Yes, uh, late 2018. Late 2018. And it, and it made a stop at the museum or Collier County back in like a little while ago. But my question is, is, how much time have you spent with the actual figurine cat, which is storied among all archaeology? You know, in some ways, it's almost a unique object. So the first time I was able to hold the cat uh, was in 2014. So that was about a year after I started my job at the Historical Society. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, I wore gloves and held it very closely over the, the foam padded table in front of me. Um, but uh, and since then, you know, we've we've had gone through talks with the Smithsonian about the loan. We made major improvements to the museum, which took us several years. Then the cat finally arrived four years later uh, and has been there ever since and will be there until uh, April of 2026. So that'll be almost eight years in total that will have been on Marco Island, which will be the longest loan um, anywhere outside of the Smithsonian of the Key Marco cat. I know this is a sort of complicated question, but who made it and what do we know about when it was made? <laughs> well, you're right. It is a complicated question. And the short answer is we don't know for sure. Um, there are some different schools of thought. Uh, generally, it's uh, attributed to the Calusa culture of Southwest Florida, which is not necessarily uh, incorrect, but it's just a little more complicated than that, as you alluded to. Um, there are different cultural areas in southwest Florida that have been defined by archaeologists over the years. Many of them are based on pottery types and, and designs and styles seen in pottery over time. Um, and so to the south of the Caloosahatchee area, uh, which would be where Mound Key, the Calusa capital was, uh, and sites like Pineland, um, <clears throat> further south of that is the Glades area. And Marco really falls into the Glades area uh, up until about... 1350 AD or so, uh, when the two cultures, um, as evidenced in their material culture, uh, seem to align more. And that archaeologists believe that at that time and after is when the Calusa domain really expanded, their empire grew out of uh, that uh, capital at Mount Key uh, and kind of um, consolidated their power across all of South Florida, including uh, at the Key Marco site. But there's difficulty in knowing when these artifacts were made and by whom because we just uh, – the science didn't exist in 1896 when they were uncovered. So, um, you know, the archaeological field methods at the time would be considered haphazard by today's archaeologists. Context wasn't recorded. Uh, radiocarbon dating was 60 years away. Um, and so 
you know, these objects as they've sat in museum collections over the years have been revisited uh, by archaeologists. And even after the publication of my book, um, some radiocarbon dates were done on our uh, artifacts in the Penn Museum's collections, which gave uh, a new series of dates um, which could apply to the Key Marco cat, depending on whether all of these artifacts were contemporaneous, meaning they were deposited in, this, in the uh, muck pit at the site at the same time. Uh, or not. What is the uh, the uh, assigned range of of when we presume the Key Marco cat and and we'll get to the deer figurehead, but you know what is it? You know it's about a thousand years. It could be right. Right, and we're very conservative in that and in, in an effort to be transparent about what we don't know at the museum. So we say generally between AD five hundred and fifteen hundred and. Uh, we say we stop it at 1500 because there were no European goods found at the site. And so, of course, uh, Ponce de Leon arrives 1513 um, and interactions with the Calusa uh, from that point on in time, there's usually evidence of European presence in archaeological sites. But there was none at Key Marco, so we think it's pre-European arrival. Uh, but how far back, we don't know for sure. Uh, for the reasons, some of the reasons I talked about and more that are uh, outlined in the book. Um, and uh, destructive analysis is a phrase yeah. that describes when you can take a sample from a piece and then do some of these techniques on it. That has not been done with the cat. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and I don't think it's something that would probably even be considered. Because it's too rare and too perfect a specimen that That's right. has no parallel. That's right. Yeah, it's it's a masterpiece, you know, and, and it's so small and so fragile that, um, you know, it, it, I think it would be unlikely that it would be subject to that kind of testing. However, these other artifacts, such as those at the Penn Museum, um, which were sampled uh, for in advance of an exhibit that students curated there at the museum, which opened in January of this past year, uh, they were different material types. They dated wood, they dated cordage, uh, they dated residue from a ceramic vessel um, and a bone artifact. And all of the dates for all four of those objects came back to about uh, A.D. 1200 to 1300, so about 800 years old. Um, and, uh, you know, these artifacts were at different parts of the site, but the same site as the Key Marco cat. So, you know, you're talking about that 500 to 1500 range. But I think as more and more evidence comes in, it's probably – if you had to pin it down within that thousand years around the 1200 to 1300 um, AD date. Can you imagine a technology arising in the future that helps archaeologists and anthropologists hone in on that more specifically without having to harm the cat? Um, I could imagine it because, you know, just in the last few decades, uh, all sorts of technology has come along um, that has given archaeologists more insight into different types of material culture. Um, there's XRF analysis of objects, for example, which was done on the cat prior to its loan uh, to us, which actually detects different elements present in an object. Uh, and for us, it was in interesting to learn about uh, the presence of these uh, elements that are usually seen in pesticides, which means the object was treated uh, over the many decades that it was resting in collection storage and exposed to these uh, pesticides. And so, um, and there's technologies now um, that will allow archaeologists to be able to tell if an object was painted or not in the past. And so we don't think the Key Marco cat was painted, but uh, some of these other artifacts from the Key Marco site were painted and their paint pigments are still visible. Uh, and so um, that sort of technology might 
you know, be useful not only to the cat but other objects that are recovered uh, and much and much more well uh, preserved moving forward. Um, I, I attempted to summarize like how it was found. So I'm going to read this and you tell me how I did. Yes. This figurine, as well as many other objects, mostly made of wood, but including some pottery, were found in 1896 in a thick layer of gray peaty marl, about 20 inches from the surface, within the boundaries of what's thought to have been a sort of water court on the north end of Marco Island, called the Court of the Pile Dwellers. And these objects were preserved extraordinarily well because the conditions were anaerobic, meaning there was no oxygen to fuel their decomposition. How'd I do? That's great. I read your That's book. Exactly right. <laughs> I can tell. So, so um, basically, what happened was, is the owner of that property, there was this big area that had a bunch of muck in it. He was digging it out to use for agriculture, to as fertilizer. Mm-hmm. They found some things, uh, some between happenstance and whatever. Uh, somebody heard about this, so pick it up from there. So, like, how did this wind up in front of this this expedition by this Frank Hamilton Cushing guy? Right. Yeah. It's a really uh, amazing uh, set of circumstances circumstances that brought Cushing to Florida. Um, there was a, a British lieutenant colonel um, vacationing in Florida. Um, he had an interest in archaeology. He heard about these finds on William D. Collier's property um, that others had made, you know, digging for fertilizer. Um, and of course, they recognized these had to be human-made objects. And so he came and did a little bit of uh, his own excavation, amateur excavation, uh, recovered uh, elements, including a wooden bowl. Um, and then on his way back to England, stopped by the Penn Museum to uh, visit a colleague uh, of his that didn't happen to not be there that day. But Cushing was there because his personal physician was also the director of the museum. And so they showed these objects to Cushing. Uh, he took an interest in them. And then on his doctor uh, slash director's orders, uh, for his ailing health, um, he was sent to Florida to check these things out. Meanwhile, um, the Br- British Lieutenant Colonel Durnford brought his objects to England and deposited them into the British Museum, where they still are today. And in fact, one is uh, still on exhibit over there as an object representative of North American cultures. And so uh, Cushing made a reconnaissance trip uh, later that year in 1895, uh, made a small excavation in the muck pit, found an incredible um, array of wooden objects, decided right then and there after two days that he needed to come back uh, to do a full-scale operation uh, and was back in Florida uh, in late 1895 and finally made it to Marco uh, in the early spring of 1896. And their expedition, um, he, he finding the cat, I guess would be a way to put it, finding the cat sort of saved the expedition, right? Like they were kind of struggling along, they were behind schedule, they were over budget, and then they found the cat, and that was enough to let them continue. That's right. And also the working conditions at the site were horrible. I mean, they were, you know, this sulfuric smell coming out of the ground uh, from the anaerobic peat. You've got mosquitoes and sand flies and all these sort of things that make working outside in Florida miserable. Um, and, of course, they're wading around in muck and, and mud. Uh, but once they started uncovering these animal carvings and human face masks made of wood. Uh, They just really recognized the importance of what they were doing and just went on with an enthusiasm um, and excitement about uh, being able to recover these things and preserve them uh, and bring them back to the museum. So 
so Cushing, you know, yeah, he he was he had a flair for the dramatic, and he also suffered, I think, from uh, depression and anxiety at times. And there were a lot of good reasons for that, as outlined in this correspondence with the the folks back home. But uh, the uh, discovery of these uh, particular objects in early March of that year really turned around the expedition. I've got something else from the book I want to quote here. Uh, so Cushing kept field journals, but it appears that the one from around the discovery was missing. Yes. But you quote, um, they had a, an, an, it's, I love how back then they had to bring an artist along with them because they basically had to draw stuff in mm-hmm. order to archive it, although they were taking some early photographs too. Um, but the artist's name was Wells Sawyer, and this was his journal entry on the day they found it. There was found today a most remarkable wood carving. It represents a masked figure, a man in ceremonial priest garb of the wild cat or tiger. The work is exquisite, never more skillful a carving and as for convention, it has all the dignity of any archaic work in the museums of the world. Egypt even has nothing of which I know which touches this real masterpiece. Where the collections which we have made, which were the, he, he writes in 1896 language here, <laughs> were the collections which we have made mine, I would give all the rest for this one specimen. It throws light also on other works which we have found. So that's like... A guy wrote that when he picked it up out of the ground 127 years ago. So they knew immediately that this was something really special. Can you describe or explain why they knew it was so special? Like what what about this made it so special? Just because it was preserved in a way that stuff like that never is? I think that certainly was part of it. Um, And, you know, just the fact that it was a complete object, I think, because a lot of these other objects coming out of the ground were fragmented or damaged in some way. Um, I think it was recognizable immediately as possibly a feline figure. Um, And, you know, if you look at other objects from around the world that were known at that time, you know, say from ancient Egypt, it it did bear some similarities to those. And and Cushing describes it as equal to the the best art of the ancient Egyptians and Assyrians, you know. And so uh, to find something like that, in the swamps of Florida, you know, was unheard of. And I I think um, the cat really solidified uh, their excitement and and he captured it very well in his description there from the field. Um, Would it be fair to say that prior to this discovery and some of the slightly earlier ones, there was really no evidence of the Calusa Glades culture other than like writings of Spanish, you know, monks in the pre- previous centuries? There were a few, um, you know, excavations uh, and a lot of probably looting of archaeological sites. And they were certainly known in southwest Florida, the shell mounds, um, that they were ancient, you know, in some way. But this was really the first uh, attempt at a, um, you know, a, a systematic excavation of an archaeological site in southwest Florida where, you know, Cushing actually used a grid system, which was... Totally new at the time, Totally new at the time, right. And, um, you know... He didn't follow it very well, though, from what your book said. (laughs) No, I think they uncovered about 2,000 objects, and he maybe documented a couple dozen at the most within the grid system. Um, But, uh, you know, it it really kicked off uh, a century of... Uh, archaeology. Um, and you have to remember archaeology was in its infancy really at the time. And so 
uh, it's a self-critical discipline, you know, and it, and and it's evolved, and the practices have evolved, and uh, were that same kind of site excavated today, uh, it would be much better documented, and the objects much better uh, cared for. But they did what they could at the time. And um, we don't have time to go into it, but you know, people should read the book. It's really interesting. Um, getting it out of the ground was easy compared to getting it back up north, because these were objects that had been away from oxygen in a safe environment for hundreds of years, if not, you know, more, and suddenly they're exposed to the air and they don't mm -hmm. really have modern curation tools and it was a real adventure getting them home. Right. Or and, to their new home. And he estimated, I think, a quarter of the objects just disintegrated on, on site as soon as they were pulled from the mud. And I think that was something that was really stressful, obviously, to him. Um, and so they, you know, devised different um, sort of uh, glycerin baths and and things you know they didn't they didn't have a, a, they were making it up they as were they making went. it up as they <laughs> went exactly and so uh, just the fact that they were able to bring these objects you know hundreds of miles back to the Penn Museum and the Smithsonian without uh, well we don't know for sure if some of them may have been damaged in transit but you know the cat in particular is in excellent condition. Uh, is amazing because, you know, they couldn't hop on a plane and fly. Oh, no, it was like a <laughs> boat to a boat to a train to a horse to yep. a, yeah. That's right, right. So huh. it's amazing that they are in the condition that they were, that they're preserved in. As I was reading through the book, I actually took a note of the photo on page 100, which includes the cat figurine, a human figure, and a deer head. And it wasn't until after I had read the book that, that I learned that the deer head is, is at the museum now, right? Tell us about the deer head that was found alongside of the cat. That's right. Yes. And, and that's from the Penn Museum. Um, and we have on loan for about a year, uh, beginning this past June until next June of 2024. Um, and it's probably the second most famous object, um, if you had to rank them, from the Key Marco site. And it's really, really amazing because it was one of the most uh, vividly painted objects and one of the few objects that Sawyer and Cushing photographed in situ, meaning in the site. So there's actually a picture of it laying in the mud as they uncovered it and the Colors are vibrant, you know, you can tell even though it's a black and white photograph. Now, of course, more than 100 years later, the pigments have faded and are really hard to see, especially in the dimly lit uh, case uh, that we have for it because we are concerned about light levels further damaging it. Um, but it's just incredibly beautiful and moving, and it actually came in three parts. So it had two uh, detachable ears, which may have actually even uh, moved, wiggled, you know, like realistically uh, with cordage attached to them. And some of the other artifacts uh, may have done that as well. And so um, uh, we're very fortunate to have it back on Marco Island and reunited in a way with the Key Marco cat and other objects. Can you explain the exhibit that they're a part of? Because you have more down there than just a Key Marco cat and a Key deer figurine. That's right. And we had to work for years on building this exhibit in advance to the cat's arrival and make you sure... You almost had to build the whole thing to get the cat. That's right. <laughs> yes. We made quite a few uh, uh, in improvements, not only to the exhibit, but just the infrastructure of the museum, making sure we have climate control and security security and all the things necessary to satisfy the loan requirements and keep these objects safe, but uh, also had to run all the interpretation through the Smithsonian and, and make sure it was up to par. And, um, and so that took many years uh, of work. But, um, you know, the cat 
is the star of the show, but there is so much more around it uh, that hopefully will provide the visitors greater context about the sophistication of the Calusa culture and their ancestors um, from the shell tools that they were uh, using um, to create things like the cat, um, but also just, you know, in everyday life. Um, they were uh, incredibly sophisticated in that they didn't rely on agriculture. You know, they uh, they relied on the bounty of the sea and the estuaries around them, the fish, the, sh the shellfish, um, and they were able to sustain that lifestyle for hundreds of years up until the arrival of Europeans uh, in the early 1500s. And so um, it's an incredible story. Um, it's a tragic story, um, but we try to give uh, the scope of that um, going even all the way back to the archaic uh, people that were there prior to uh, what we know it now as the Calusa. Um, the water court that they were found in, there's some research that shows that those were created to keep fish as like a resource that was, they can, like a refrigerator for fish or something or a, a, a cupboard for fish, right? Right. That's right. Keep the fish alive, uh, but in a like controlled... a big outdoor aquarium. <laughs> exactly. So... Uh, yeah, and there's been new excavations and research on that in the past few years done um, at Mound Key uh, where they're able to um, look at these shell benches that the water courts might have been in between. Um, and so now the Key Marco site is largely developed, the one on Marco Island, um, so you can't see any of those features anymore. But thankfully, Wells Sawyer, the artist, also did a topographical map of the site at the time in 1896 where you can see where some of those shell ridges uh, would have been in, in the mounds and other uh, geographic features. And so, um, and it's a common thing at many of these Calusa sites up and down uh, the southwest Florida coast. So, um, so there is growing evidence for live uh, storage of fish as part of their uh, culture. Um, and it's entirely possible that there are other things like this cat under the ground somewhere in southwest Florida that just never happened to be found, right? Yeah, it's definitely possible. And, you know, it's mind blowing for me to think about archaeologists, that. Archaeologists, true. <laughs> archaeologists certainly have believed that um, because they've been in search of, of things like this um, ever since Cushing. You know, people came immediately after famous archaeologists to this area to try to find more. Um, and to varying degrees, um, they have found more, but none so spectacular as the Key Marco site, the, the court of the pile dwellers in particular. Um, and uh, so you never know. But with, you know, development uh, of southwest Florida and possible uh, rising sea levels, you know, you know um, coastal sites are in jeopardy. Um, and so uh, people like the Florida Public Archaeology Network do a great job of monitoring you know, erosion of archaeological sites. But um, these things are still, if they're out there, still in danger of being lost, you know, before they're ever even found. Um, we started with me asking you if you could have ever imagined you'd write a book on the cat. Um, you call it an object biography. Can you just explain before we go, like, why you decided to write it the way you did? You broke it up into nine sections and you kind of looked at a slice even from like before it was a cat, like back when it was still part of a tree or something. <laughs> but can you explain how, why you decided to write it that way? Because it was really intriguing. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, you know, every object has kind of a beginning and an end and in, in a life story. Uh, some are more interesting or useful than others. Um, but I, when I thought about the cat and I had to think about it a lot, um, 
I just I what struck me was that you know it was made in this one context for uh, probably spiritual religious reasons um, and was important to an individual or a community. Um, and now you know I, I, and I thought too about the hands that held it and who was the person that made it. You know, um, and now in this context where it's sort of uh, a, a driver of the local economy, you know, and it's a tool for education um, and it has a completely different meaning than the maker certainly intended, you know, and I think they would be, I don't know how they would feel about it being in a museum hundreds of years later um, and, and um, having us here talking about it on the radio, you know. So uh, I think it was just that transformation over time and the different hands that it had passed through over time and the different contexts it's been a part of, they all were unique. And so that's why I uh, decided to break it up into the different lives. And obviously I chose nine just because, you know, cat has nine yeah. lives. So it's an attempt at humor, I guess. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, it, you know, an object holds power of some kind based on like how it's affected the world around it. And this cat figurine has definitely affected the world around it for a long time. So so whether the, uh, the – it may have just been a toy or something that somebody made, but it certainly has grown into a life of its own. That's right. Absolutely. And, and it will continue to have an impact on our uh, museum and, and our local uh, culture and identity on Marco Island as well. All right. Well, we are unfortunately out of time. By the way, real quick, um, uh, I Googled it and I found a Reddit thread where they mentioned that the Smithsonian has a 3D printer blueprint – that you can download if you have a 3D printer and you can make your own cat. That's right. Yep. It's available online. Huh. All right. My guest is Austin Bell. He's curator of collections for the Marco Island Historical Society, consulting scholar at the Penn Museum, and author of The Nine Lives of Florida's Famous Key Marco Cat. Austin, thanks for coming in and talking with us about your book and this local bit of history. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, again, the Key Marco Cat will remain on display at the Marco Island Historical Museum until April of 2026, and the Key Marco Deer figurine will be there until June of next year. Just a quick note before we go, Tropical Storm Adelia has is still working its way north. The National Hurricane Center is now forecasting it to be a major Category 3 hurricane at landfall early on Wednesday. The most likely area for landfall is from Sarasota north to Tallahassee. Stay tuned to WGCU throughout the day and tomorrow. We will have the latest on the storm as it hopefully passes right by us. This is WGCU FM Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.